I was reading the book of Psalms this week, and I love how over and over and over in the book of Psalms, I don't know why this struck me this week, that David refers to the church or the assembling of the saints. He refers to what we call the church, the local church, as the house over and over and over. And what a fitting description. The house is where you come to get fed. The house is where you know you're accepted no matter what you've been through. The house is where we gather together and have community. The Bible says in Psalms 122, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Man, I am glad to be in church this morning. Somebody say amen. We're in a series that we've been calling when life gives you lemons. And uh, man, life gives you lemons. You have two choices. You can deal with the sour or you can make lemonade. You can find joy in the lemons. You can find happiness in the lemons. <laughs> One of the things that ought to make us happy, especially during this time, if there was ever anything that we took for granted, one of the things that ought to make us happy is when we get to gather together. When we get to celebrate Jesus corporately together, I'm so thankful for technology. I'm so thankful that we're able to podcast. I'm so thankful that we're able to stream live. But there's just something powerful about gathering together. Doc was here last week, and as he was leaving, I said, man, it's good to see you. He goes, I've been watching online, but it's just not the same. There's just power in community. The Bible says in Hebrews that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Never underestimate the power of community. We're in the third week of this series, and we're going chapter by chapter through the happiest book in the Bible. The happiest book in the Bible, 16 different times in four short chapters, the word happiness, the word joy, the word rejoice is used. And the most amazing thing about this book, the happiest book in all the Bible, is it's written by a guy named Paul while he's in prison. Not only is he in prison, he's been in prison, the experts think, about two to three years at this moment, and he's awaiting his execution. If there was ever a time not to be happy, it was this time. Yet Paul writes to the church at Philippi and he tells them over and over and over again to rejoice. In chapter 1, we looked at the fact that you can't find happiness in your circumstances. Circumstances change, Christ never changes. Last week was a little bit tense. We talked about the power of the mind. And Paul talked about that we're to have the mind of Christ We talked about how Christ went through tough times, and yet through all that, we never heard him complain. We never heard him um, get discouraged. We never heard him get frustrated. He found joy in the proper things, and we talked about so many of you are going through tough times physically because you allow yourself to go through tough times mentally, and we talked about how we take control of our thoughts, and we take control of our mind. If you missed any of those sermons, you can go to actionchurch.tv. You can go to your app store, your podcast store, excuse me, on your phone, and you can type in actionchurch.tv. You'll get those podcasts. You can hit subscribe, and they will download those every week for free to your phone. Today, we're in chapter three, and we're going to be talking about happiness that is found through believing. Happiness that is found through believing. When we put our faith in Christ, there's joy There's happiness in the fact that we are able to stand before God knowing that we're made perfect, not by what we do, 
but by what he did on the cross. That's powerful. Paul breaks this down. I'm going to break it down. We're going to be a little bit different message today, a little, a little deeper discussion today that I normally like to talk about on a Sunday morning, but that's just the point of going chapter by chapter. You don't get to skip over the deep stuff. You got to deal with the deep stuff. As a follower of Jesus, listen to this, my happiness, as a follower of Jesus, my joy, it does not come through my job. You will be hard-pressed to find anybody who loves and enjoys what they do for a living more than I do. Yet when I find my happiness coming through that, I will always find it lacking. My joy doesn't come through my finances. My joy doesn't come through my marriage. My joy is not to come through what others think of me, who my friends are. If you want true everlasting joy, those things come through the fact that Jesus Christ, in my case, Jesus Christ has saved my soul. I was on my way to a devil's hell and I met a man named Jesus and he changed everything. Someone asked me, they said, do you really believe that? And I said, yeah, I'm smoking what I'm selling when it comes to Jesus. I know what I was before Jesus. I know what I've been after Jesus. Someone said, man, you're still pretty rough. That's the great thing about Jesus. It's not about what I do. It's about what he did. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for relationship. If there's any reason the church ought to be a celebration on Sunday, it's the fact that those of us that have a personal relationship with him, we have every reason to celebrate. One of my values in my life is to make everything a celebration, to enjoy the journey. If the world can celebrate all the stupid stuff they celebrate, how much more should we celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, died on a cross, rose from the grave for you and I. There's power in that. I talked to a guy this week, and he was literally not disappointed. He was literally depressed because the Georgia Bulldog game got canceled for Saturday. With all due respect to any Georgia Bulldog fan, to any football fan, if you go into a depression over a game not being played, then you're finding your joy in the wrong things. No wonder you're weak and miserable because you're finding something so insignificant to find your value in and you get disappointed when you find it lacking and it lets you down in life. True joy comes from Christ and knowing what Christ has done for us. What's interesting to me is we as Christ followers are able to have true joy through Jesus. Yet if we were to be honest, the people who call themselves followers of Jesus, I'm just going to be honest with you today, are some of the most miserable people I've ever seen. Those who call themselves Christ followers find their joy and happiness in their circumstances just about more than any other group of people out there. We talk about the faith that comes in Christ, and then we go into a tailspin over an election like it caught God's by surprise. Stand close, preacher. Someone asked me, what do you think about this? I said, I think God's in control. What do you think about this? I think God's in control. Now, if you want to get in my flesh side, I can give you a a list 20 pages long of what my flesh thinks about certain situations. 
But at the end of the day, God is God. And I'm not. That's a reason to celebrate. God wasn't caught by surprise on anything that happens in this world. Many times when you walk in the doors of the church, you don't see happiness, you see misery. Actually, my wife and I were talking to someone yesterday, and we were talking about the church, and my son had his soccer party here afterwards, and no, your kids can't have their soccer party here. It's just the advantage of being the pastor. We're not cleaning up after your kids. I'll clean up after mine. It's not fair. Life's not fair. Just go ahead and let you know ahead of time before you ask. But we're talking to a certain individual afterwards, and they're like, so tell me about the church. And I said, ah, we're non-denominational, blah, 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 blah. And he said, man, sounds a whole lot more fun than my church. And I'm not, listen, I'm not trying to get religious here. I'm not trying to, I'm saying, telling you what he said. He said, he said, I grew up with my mom Baptist and that was pretty fun. But she married my dad who was Catholic. And he said, and this is what he said. If I'm lying, I'm dying. I had no idea what I was preaching. He said, he goes, I learned very quickly in life. Church was about a lot of things. Fun was not one of them. He said, he said, it's more like going to a funeral every Sunday. Now, here's the deal. I've never been to a Catholic church. Maybe you have, and maybe it's the most exciting thing in the world. I don't know. I'm just telling you what this gentleman told me. And I thought to myself, we serve a God who conquered death and is alive. Why would we want to go pay our penance every week in a miserable environment? Church ought to be a celebration. You've heard me say it ought to be a tailgate every Sunday. I ought to pull in the parking lot, and there ought to be people that have been here since 6 in the morning grilling out brats and grilling out breakfast just like they do at a Georgia football game. This ought to be the most exciting place in all the world because we're so excited that we get to gather together and celebrate as a family what Christ has done in our life. Most churches resemble a funeral home a whole lot more than they do a party. <laughs> And here's the other thing about Christians that I find ironic. We ought to be the happiest people in the earth. We're the most miserable people in the earth. And it's almost like it's our mission to make everyone else around us just as miserable as we are. If there's ever been a truer statement than misery loves company, I, I, I don't know what it is. I always find it amusingly sad when someone enters into a relationship with Jesus Christ and they're on fire for the things of God. Because almost every single time, a long-term Christian, a mature Christian, will come up to them and say, hey, just slow down. You're going you're to burn out. Oh, that newness will wear off. Hey, hey just don't worry, don't worry. They'll slow down. You, you, what they're saying is basically, hey, just, I know you're excited right now, and, but don't worry, soon you'll be miserable like me. It'll lose that new car smell, if you will. And I've never understood why we would want to throw water on somebody who's on fire for the things of God. We've taken something as awesome as Jesus giving his life for us, and we've turned it into something miserable. And Paul's talking about this in Philippians 3. And the biggest reason, I believe, for such a lack of joy in the house is because we talk about a word a lot in church. We throw it around a lot. A lot of churches even have this word in their name. It seems like a real simple 
word. But we very few people actually understand the power of the word. The reason we can have joy as Christ followers, no matter what's going on in our life, is for the simple word, grace. Grace. My daughter's middle name is Grace. We've all used the word grace. We've all asked for grace. But very few of us comprehend grace. Let me give you a very elementary definition of the word grace. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. Grace is the unmerited favor of God. We serve a grace-giving God. Let me make this clear to you today. We do not serve a just God. We do not serve a fair God. You don't want justice from God. You don't want what you deserve from God. We don't want a fair God. Maybe you do. I do not want a fair God. I don't want what I deserve. Thank God for a grace-filled God who comes along in his unmerited favor and gives me something that I do not deserve, that I cannot buy, that I cannot work for. (laughs) It's God giving us what we need, not what we deserve. It's God giving us something we can't earn, we can't buy, we can't work for. It is God loving us so much, don't miss this, that in spite of our sin... He provides us with the gift of his love. That's grace. And how you could get over that is beyond me. How we could not get excited about that is beyond me. And what we actually love is we love grace in our life, but we don't think other people deserve the same grace. We deserve grace for our sin. They don't deserve grace for their sin. Grace, it's one of the most common words in the church. It's one of the most preached topics in the church. The truth is, though, the church loves to talk about grace. Don't miss this. The church loves to talk about grace, but is scared to death to live it out because it's unmerited favor. It means we have to love people regardless of their actions. Stop that. Back that up. It doesn't even mean we have to love them. It means we have to realize that God loves them regardless of their actions. See, as with most things, and we don't even realize how society infiltrates the church, society has infiltrated the church more than the word of God has infiltrated the church. Our culture has has made the word grace difficult to grasp. We look at grace almost as a weakness. Until we're the ones who need it. We teach our kids growing up, hey, guess what? There is no free lunch. And then we wonder why they can't comprehend grace. We love to say, you get what you work for. And I get the context of that. I do. But then we don't understand why we can't comprehend grace. Because grace isn't about our work. (laughs) How many of us have told our kids... I don't even think trying to be deceitful, but hey, God loves good little boys and girls. Insinuating God doesn't love bad little boys and girls. 
That's not grace. How many preachers have got up, myself included, and say, I want to give you five steps a day in making God happy. We don't understand grace. We can't comprehend grace. It doesn't make sense to us how a perfect God could love imperfect people. So instead of finding true love, joy in the love of God, don't miss this, we make ourselves miserable trying to obtain something that's already ours, God's grace. We've taken grace and we've made it work-based. We've said, man, if we can obtain this, if we can do that, if I can stand on one foot and juggle this ball, then God will love me. Or man, if I can stay married for 40 years, God will love me, but God can't love me if my marriage falls apart, or God can't love me if I do this, or God can't love me if I do that. And we've taken God's grace and we've turned it rule-based. But Paul understood grace. And because he understood grace, he was able to find true joy even when locked into a cell. Look how he starts the chapter right here, Philippians 3.1. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice. Whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. I love this. He's writing to the church at Philippi, and look what he says. He tells them, hey, whatever happens... No matter what happens, no matter the circumstances, no matter how bad things get, no matter how dark the days become, no matter how insane things get, if I end up dying in this prison, no matter what happens, I'm telling you, rejoice in the Lord. (laughs) And then I like what he says, I never get tired of telling you these things. What things? The things he's about to tell them. And I'm going to break it down here for you in a minute in the chapter. He says, I never get tired of telling you these things. I I never get tired of telling you the things I'm about to tell you. And then he says, here's why I tell you, because it safeguards your faith. Well, guess what he's about to get into? He's about to get into grace. He says, I never want to stop teaching you about grace, because grace safeguards your faith. (laughs) Now, before we get to verse 2... You need to understand that Paul is going to have a little bit of an attitude shift. Right here's like, whatever happens, dear brothers and sisters, rejoice. But in verse 2, you're going to see Paul get a little passionate about this subject. You're going to see Paul get a little smart-alecky about this subject. You're going to see Paul throw some things in the religious people's face of the day almost mockingly towards them because the early church had a horrible tendency to take grace and turn it into rules. Paul is about to deal with a very passionate subject because what Paul saw was the number one killer for most Christ followers when it came to their joy was that they took grace and they turned it into legalism. How many of you have ever heard, I'm not saying you know what it means, I'm just saying you've heard the word legalism in the church. Legalism. Thank you, you can put your hands down. The church is full of legalism. The reason most people don't want anything to do with church 
is because of legalism. The church, instead of preaching grace and teaching grace, has taught legalism. So you're like, Gary, what is legalism? Bottom shelf cookies on the bottom shelf definition of legalism is this, and you'll understand. Legalism is substituting rules for relationship. Legalism is substituting rules for relationship. It's taking rules. Don't miss this. It's taking procedures. It's taking the things that we do and saying, if we do these things, we're going to be made right with God. That's totally contrary to the word of God. You're not made right with God by what you do. You're made right with God by a relationship with Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. Don't miss that. But the church realized that it could not control its members by saying that. It couldn't control how they acted in the community. It couldn't control what they did in the community. So the church came along and said, hey, we need to implement some rules. You got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to act like this, and you got to do this. <laughs> Legalism says, I love you because you act a certain way. Legalism says, God loves you because you look a certain way. Legalism says, God loves you because you follow the rules that have been laid out. Grace says, I love you. For no other reason than I love you. No strings attached. Legalism was huge back in this time. The religious leaders of the day had created all these rules, or what the the Old Testament refers to as laws. They had created all these laws that you had to follow in order to make it to heaven. And along comes this guy named Jesus, and he says, all you have to do is put your faith in what he did on the cross and receive the grace that was available. This was shocking for the day because the church during this time wanted to control its people, how they looked and how they acted and how they thought, so it implemented rules because the church, don't miss this, the church was looking for outward representation of faith instead of inward representation of a relationship. (laughs) So everything was good in the early church, as long as the Jews were getting saved, because the Jews knew the rules. The Jews were raised being taught the rules. So they entered into a relationship with Christ and kept following the rules. Problem is, Paul comes along, Paul gets his life radically changed, and he doesn't feel called to preach to the Jews. He feels called to preach to the Gentiles who haven't been raised in all the Jewish traditions. (laughs) So Paul would go into these towns with these Gentiles, and he would preach Jesus. People would come to know Christ. (laughs) After they would come to know Christ, a church would start. Paul would start the church. When the church got a foundation under it, Paul would leave that church and go to the next city. After Paul, don't miss this, after Paul would leave the church, a group of Jewish Christians would then follow in who were called the Judaizers, and they would come in and they would basically begin to undo Paul's teaching. Hey, listen, what Paul did was pretty good and it got you to God. 
But if you want to take it a whole nother level, you've got to start having these rules. And you've got to start doing this. And you've got to start doing that. Paul got you started, but Paul didn't give you the complete message. They would tell the Gentiles that if you really are saved, you'll follow all this Jewish law. You had to eat like the Jewish people. You had to dress like the Jewish people. You had to adopt the Jewish people's customs. And one of the ones that really fired Paul up was circumcision. They would come in and begin to preach circumcision to these Jews, again, looking for an outward expression of an inward faith. So Paul comes along and says, hey, I keep telling you these things. Remember verse one. And then look how the attitude changes in verse two. He says, watch out for those dogs. That seems a little harsh, but I'm going to break it down to show you how much harsher it is. He says, watch out for those dogs. Those people who do evil, those mutilators, just cutting at them, who say you must be circumcised to be saved. He gets harsh here. You've got to understand the context here to understand how cutting Paul's words were. This was the ultimate insult. And it was something the church at Philippi and the Judaizers would understand immediately. The Judaizers, they, they thought they were better than the Gentiles. Matter of fact, they thought they were better than just about everybody. They were the Jews. They were God's chosen people. And because they followed all these rules and regulations and all these outward expressions, God loved them more. They actually would get up every day, the Jewish Christians, and they would thank God every day for three things. They would thank God, first of all, if they weren't born a slave. They would thank God that they weren't born a woman. And then they would thank God that they weren't born, don't miss this phrase, a Gentile dog. That was their three prayers every day. They looked down upon the Gentiles. So here's Paul preaching to the Gentile believers, and he says, watch out for those dogs. He takes the same insult that the Jews used against them and throws it back on them. This was cutting for the day. He's so passionate about the topic of legalism that he refers to them in the same manner that they refer to the Gentiles. Philippians would have got a kick out of this. Paul had a little bit of edge to him. Paul was not all prim and proper as the Jewish leaders were. (laughs) They would have understood that Paul was being serious about the issues. They would have sensed immediately the attitude shift in Paul. All these things I teach you, by the way, watch out for these people that are trying to implement these rules. Paul understood that true happiness comes from understanding the awesomeness of grace. Paul Paul was passionate about realizing you cannot be happy following the bondage of legalism because it's nothing more miserable than having to follow man-made rules because you're forced to follow man-made rules. It's different when you want to follow rules. Let me just tell you, we're automatically born with a rebellious spirit in us. I do not want to get political here. Do not read into this as me being political. I'm telling you, it's probably a fault of mine, Gary Lamb. We go to Woodstock yesterday. I grab my mastic in my pocket because I assume that every store I'm going to go into, they're going to require me to wear a mask. Something just flies all over me when they require me 
to do something. But what was funny was I walked into other stores that didn't require it, and I caught myself putting it on. You know why? Because they weren't requiring it. I wanted to have respect for the other people in there who maybe struggled with that issue. Now, I wore it in both places, but in the places that required it, for some weird reason, I had an attitude about it. The places that didn't require it, I felt, man, I'm doing something nice here today. I'm wearing this mask. Look at this. I'm following the rules because I wanted to. Paul couldn't stand these man-made rules being dumped on them. And he calls them out. He understood that true happiness comes when you understand that grace comes from God. Paul was so hung up on the, the circumcision thing because this was so big of an outward physical sign that you are a Christ follower. So Paul comes along and he said, listen, listen, listen. You, you can slice and dice that thing. You can pull it any way you want to pull it. It doesn't make you right with God. And this flew all over the face of the Jewish people. Paul was coming along and saying, listen, listen, listen. What makes you right with God is not outward rules, but an inward relationship with Jesus Christ. And it still happens in the church today. The church today is not battling over circumcision, thank God. But legalism is everywhere and anywhere. There's a certain group of Christians that say to be a Christian, you got to speak in tongues. That's called legalism. To say one group has to do something else to be a Christian, that's legalism, it's rules. There's a, another group of Christians out there that say women can't wear pants. There's another group of Christians, literally two weeks ago I had someone ask me this. They said, Am I, can I come to your church? I said, well, sure, why couldn't you come to my church? Well, I'm divorced. I was like, okay. What's that got to do with church? Oh, I'm not allowed to go to the church I grew up in since I got divorced. That's rules. There's another group of Christians, one of my best friends in the world, as a pastor and believe, he said, the only way you're a Christian is if you've been baptized. There's a group of Christians that say you can't drink, you can't go to the movies, you can't dance. There's another group of Christians, I got saved in a church like this, that, that believes the only Bible is the King James Bible. Can't smoke, got to have short hair, can't have tattoos, women can't wear earrings. I told you before, the first church I ever pastored, I had someone leave our church over drums. We didn't even have drums. But they asked me, would you ever have drums? So if I ever found someone who could play drums, oh, we're leaving. So, can't be a Christian. That's what they told me, word for word here, and bring African tribal beats into the church. Oh. I just thought I had a bunch of white people who couldn't sing on rhythm, and if I had a drummer back there, I might help them sing together. That's all I thought. Let me show you some crazy rules. First church I ever worked at, a singles pastor, you could not sing a song publicly as a group unless the song was 25 years old. There's enough time to prove itself and stand the test of time. Man-made rules. So, so we laugh about this circumcision thing, but what we don't realize is, man, we live in a day and time where there's just rules everywhere in the church. I know churches where you can't wear shorts on the property. There's actually a group of churches that refer to themselves by this phrase, Baptist Briders. Anybody heard of that phrase, Baptist Briders? Don't ever go down the Baptist Brider rabbit tail. You will drive yourself crazy. They believe only Baptist, not Christians, only Baptist, <laughs> will get to feast with Jesus in the end. 
There's other churches that believe you have any type of music other than acapella. It's wrong. I know of a summer camp within 30 minutes of here that the teens have to swim in pants and T-shirts because we can't have mixed bathing. I know a college campus, Christian college campus, I kid you not, that has blue sidewalks and pink sidewalks because you got to follow the rules. I know churches where you can't be involved in interracial, interracial relationships. I literally heard a preacher one time get up and say, you ever seen a German shepherd and a Doberman pincher together? Yeah, you idiot, they're dogs. They're all the same breed. It doesn't matter what breed they are. If you think God's worried about skin color, then you have not read this book. I'm not trying to be mean today, but man, have you not read this book? I think you get the point. We, not, we might not be telling people they got to be circumcised to be Christians, but we're definitely telling people they've got to act a certain way and look a certain way and dress a certain way. Man, Paul hated legalism because here's why I hated it so much. Legalism produced a works-based salvation, and that's contrary to the word of God. You cannot work your way into heaven. Verse three, he said, for we who worship by the spirit are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. He's just going on needling the religious people. He even uses the, he said, he goes, those of us who have a true relationship with Christ, we are, we are circumcised. God's cut out the old internally in us. We're something new. He, he's saying, we're all the circumcision. The, the Judaizer said you had to be circumcised in your flesh. And Paul comes along and uses the same phrase. He said, no, you had to be circumcised in your soul. God has to come along, enter in you, have that relationship with him. God cuts away the old nature of the heart, and he gives us a new nature. And that's the real circumcision. And the Jews' heads were just exploding as Paul's teaching this grace concept. He exhorts the Philippians to put no confidence in their own effort. Because Paul knew when we put our confidence in our own efforts, we'll fall short every time. God's standard is perfection. And you can't live up to that. I can't live up to that. Because we couldn't live up to that, he sent his son who was made perfect. And that Jesus came and he paid the price for our imperfection with his perfection. It's not on what we do because we can't do it. It's based on what he did. He keeps on going in verse four. Though I can have confidence in my own effort. Here's where he gets cocky. He, he says, these dogs, they talk about works. And he says, but hey, I mean, if it was work-based, I could have confidence in my own effort. And he lays it out. He says, there ain't nobody. There's nobody outwardly who's done it better than me. And yet I still realize it's not based on the outward. He says, he says though I have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, 
Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I even have more. He said, if these religious people are confident in what they do, I have way more confidence. He said, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew, if there ever was one. He said, I was a member of the Pharisees, that's the religious group of the day, who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. He goes, nobody followed the Jewish law more than me. I was circumcised when I was eight. I was born into the right tribe. I got the right pedigree. If anybody would get into heaven based on their external, it's me. He said, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. He said, I was so zealous about the rules that I persecuted and killed those who didn't follow the rules. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Paul says, if if anybody's getting into heaven based on their external, it's me. And yet even I realize I've fallen short over and over and over and over again. Paul wasn't being cocky here. He's just letting the church know that when you're dealing with works, it never works. If adding things up gets you into heaven, then we don't need grace. Man, it's impossible to find joy. It's impossible to find happiness in a rules-based religion. It's impossible. You can't find joy and happiness living your life controlled by guilt. It's impossible. Legalism is miserable because you never know. Don't miss this. You never know. If you don't hear anything else, I say, here's why legalism doesn't work. Because you never know is good Good enough. If my good deeds outweigh my bad deeds, am I all right? Is there a point system to good? I mean, do I get five points for coming to church? Is the end of the day I got to have a million points? I don't know. Like, how good's good enough? Is it 100,000 points? So do I get five points for coming to church? Do I get two points deducted for saying a cuss word? Because if that's the case, I'm at like negative 737,000. Like, I, like I, I'm, I'm behind the eight ball here. How good is good enough? If it's based on my works, what's the formula? Do I, do I lose 20 points if I, if I steal a car, but I only lose two points if I steal a candy bar? I need to know the formula if it's based on works. So if I get divorced, I do this. But if I make it 10 years in my marriage, do I get 25 points? I'm just asking questions, valid questions. If you're telling me I got to do certain things to get into heaven, I need to know the formula. And the Bible doesn't give us a formula. Because there is no formula. Because you can't do it. He did it. And we miss out on that. Man, where's the joy in that? So many of us are driven by legalism and we don't even realize it. Three examples of legalism, write this down. Number one's rituals. Rituals. <laughs> Paul says, I, I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's a ritual. Now remember, don't, don't miss this. Rituals in and of themselves are not bad. In fact, rituals can be very meaningful. They can help us connect with God in awesome ways. But the minute we say we're made right with God... Because of a ritual, we've made it a works-based salvation. 
If we say I'm right with God because I got baptized, baptism has moved from a meaningful ritual to a legalistical ritual. I'm right with God because I received communion. No, communion's a powerful thing. We're going to do communion on Christmas Eve this year. It's a powerful thing. It's a connecting to, the, to what Christ did when he suffered for us. But we're not made right with God because we take communion. I'm right with God because I'm a member of such and such church. Uh-uh. And if you go to this church, you're really screwed, if that's the case. We, we, we love rituals. I think we ought to have an altar call. Gary, are you anti-altar calls? Nope. But you won't find an altar call in the Bible. It's a man-made thing. I think it was Finney who created altar calls because he was a very powerful lawyer and he was used to getting a verdict. So when he would do huge revivals, he needed a verdict at the end. Is there anything wrong with altar calls? Absolutely, positively not. But when you make it a requirement, it becomes a rule. Why don't we have a cross in the church? Anything wrong with a cross church? Nope. Not at all. But when you make it a requirement, it becomes a ritual. Why don't we have pews? There's nothing sacred about pews. I literally had someone tell me about six months ago, I really like your church. Man, I just wish you had the words on in an old book. I said, do you think the words of the song will lose their meaning when they go on a screen? I'm, I'm just asking, is the hymnal inspired? It became a ritual for him. So, so legalism manifests itself in a lot of ways. Rituals. It, it manifests itself in religion. Religion is the greatest detriment to Christianity. <laughs> a lot of people try to, don't miss this, a lot of people try to substitute Christianity with churchianity. I think because they go to a church, we're right with God. Or I volunteer at the church, I'm right with God. Because I got there 15 minutes early, I'm right with God. All oh, y'all would be in trouble. Religion is always, I read this this week, religion is always man's outward attempt to reach to God. Religion is always man's outward attempt to reach God. Christianity, though, is God's outward attempt through Jesus Christ to reach man. Religion says, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and I'm going to get close to God. A relationship says, no, Christ did this where he could be close to us. It's a big difference. The root word for religion literally means bondage. It literally means bondage. There's no joy in religion. Have you ever, seriously, have you ever met a happy religious person? Think about the group that comes to your door and knocks all the time in their white shirts and black ties. Have you ever met one of them that was happy? They're miserable. They're really miserable when they come to my door. Now, I find enjoyment in their religion because it brings me satisfaction to pick on them for the day. But they're miserable. I grew up in a very religious sect of the church. And the people were just miserable. They would just find stuff to be against. Just literally find stuff to be against. Just miserable. He laughs, so I'm going to bring it up. I'll never forget when we started the church. God, I had this thing. I thought it was a catchy little slogan. And I was like, action church, no perfect people allowed. 
meaning come as you are. I'll be danged if one of his family members didn't go crazy on me on social media. I guess Jesus ain't allowed there because he's perfect. Just looking for something. Now, she'd been praying for her son to get into church for 20-something years. 20-something years. But instead of rejoicing in that, was mad over a phrase. I told you about the time I was at the Waffle House. I walked into Waffle House. The guy I had led to the Lord was in there. This guy had had his life radically changed. Drugs, all kinds of stuff. And he was sitting with this lady, older lady. He said, Pastor Gary, I want you to meet my mom. No, I, I just lied to you. I was sitting at Waffle House, and they walked in. So she couldn't see me very well. And she walks over, and she's like, I just, she's crying, crying. So glad brought you, God brought you into my son's life. I prayed for years for him. So she, she said, can I hug you? I said, sure. So I get out of my seat to hug her, and I have shorts on. And she sees I have a tattoo going all down my leg. She stopped cold in her tracks. She said, have you not read Leviticus? About marking up your body? That's sinful. Turns around and walks out of the restaurant. More interested in outward expression, the fact that she'd been praying for her son. She was a religious person. Hell is going to be full of religious people. Joy comes through a relationship with Christ. And then there's the rules. So it comes in rituals, it comes in religion, it manifests itself in rules. <laughs> Try to follow the rules. Paul even lays it out to me. He said, I was a Pharisee. I knew the rules. He said, I had the T-shirt to prove I knew the rules. There were 619 laws that they had to follow. And Paul said, I follow them all better than anybody. 619, he goes, I, I know the rules. Keep the Sabbath day holy. Don't do anything that looks like that. I mean, if your hen laid an egg on the Sabbath, you couldn't eat that egg. I mean, there's crazy rules, you know. <laughs> you know one of the rules was if you got bit by a mosquito on the Sabbath, you couldn't scratch it till Monday. Crazy rules. If you look in the mirror and saw gray hair, you couldn't pluck it till Monday. Rules, just man-made rules. Church is full of that. Got to do this to do that. Got to do this to serve. Got to do this to that. To eh. We just make rules. We just come up with stuff. First church I ever worked at, you couldn't go to the movies. Couldn't go, couldn't go watch a movie in the movie theater. But you could go, and I, young kids, I, you're not going to remember this place, but there used to be this place called Blockbuster. But you could go to Blockbuster and rent a movie. I always thought that was unique. We couldn't go to any restaurant that served alcohol. So literally, if you wanted to go to a sit-down restaurant, there was this amazing place called Shoney's. It was the only place you could go. You'd go eat at Shoney's. Like just crazy rules. And then we wonder why people rebel against the church because anytime you step into legalism, you lose your happiness. I challenge you. Find one joyful, legalistical person. You can't do it. We need to resist legalism. And it's our natural inclination because we're used to work-based. We get work-based at our job, work-based in our marriage. We teach our kids to be work-based. I, I get it. But we've got to realize, man, that's the natural. We're dealing with supernatural with God, and it's not about our works. It's about what he did. 
We got to watch out for those dogs that try to make us follow rules for the simple fact of following rules. What's funny is when you truly become a Christ follower and your life begins to change, someone won't have to come along and implement rules for you to want to change. The Holy Spirit of God will convict you about what you should do and what you shouldn't do. Paul said in verse 7, because I once thought these things were valuable. What things? All the things he just listed, remember? I thought all these things were valuable. But now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless. When compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for this sake, I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage so that I could gain Christ. He said, I've got rid of all those rules. I've got rid of all those stipulations. I've got rid of all those outward signs. It's all worthless because of what Christ has done and and become one with him. I no longer count my own righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I became righteous through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. Man. Man, I saw one of the pastors at one of the biggest churches in the country this week got removed from his pastorate because he messed up. Someone, every time that happens, people message me. I said, what do you think? I said, I think he's human. But he, but he should be stepped down. I said, maybe. I said, I wonder what would happen if they put him on the sideline for six months and got him help and got him healing and got him healthy again instead of kicking him to the curb. I said, because here's what's going on right now. He's without a job. He doesn't know how he's going to provide for us. That's his own fault. True. Get it. Now he's scared. Now he's blasted all over the internet that he messed up, so he's going into hiding. So guess what he's going to go look for now? All the places he shouldn't do just to find comfort, just to find community, the things he ought to be getting from the church. He'll come out worse than this in six months than he is now because the church didn't show grace. But he messed up. But we all mess up. He just didn't mess up the same way you mess up. And he messed up the same way some of you mess up. You just didn't get caught. Oh, by the way, he messed up the same way some of you messed up and did get caught. You just didn't lose your job over it. They don't care that you're the manager of the bank screwing around. He's a pastor. He ought to be held to a different standard. He should. You're right. Because he's a pastor, the church ought to come around because he was there for all those people in their darkest hours. And they ought to love on him. That's grace. True happiness comes when you realize that there's nothing you can do to earn God's love. He did it all. He did it all. There's nothing my children can do. Nothing. Nothing. To make me love them more. Nothing. Well, what if your son was this? Or what if your daughter was that? There's choices in life that I hope my children make. There's things that I hope they don't go down that path because I know it'll be difficult for them. But my love for them is not based on them doing X, Y, or Z. My love is based on them because they're my kids. They're my kids. I don't always like them. Like 99.9% of the time. But I always love them. Because they're my kids. 
God's not always going to like necessarily what we do. But there's no formula. He just loves us. We just don't understand grace. God, he loves us in the muck. He loves us in the mire. <laughs> love isn't earned. God's love isn't earned. God's love is offered. And when you realize that for God so loved the world, man, joy comes from that. Joy comes from that. One of the things that I thank God for when I went through my most difficult time in life is I never forgot that God loved me. I see guys go through that and think God doesn't love them anymore. For whatever reason, of all the horrible things that I thought of, I never thought God quit loving me. Because had I thought God quit loving me, I'd have never got through it. God loves us right where we are, broke, busted, and disgusted. But Gary, you don't know what I've done. Let me make this as clear to you as possible. I don't care. I don't want to know. I've got time for your drama. I don't care. God knows. And he still loves you. But how can he? Because he's God and you're not. God, your life would be changed if you realized the creator of the universe loves you right where you are. I think we can grieve the Holy Spirit. I think we can break the heart of God. I think all of those things. But we can never lose the love of God. I know I let God down. I know I break his heart. I know he's like, you stupid idiot, man. I had it laid out for you right here. Just do what I'm laying out. Why do you got to be difficult? Man. I was thinking about this the other day, actually. I left downtown to go to my house. It's literally one road because I was on the side road right here. All I have to do is get in my car and go straight. I went straight. I got here, and the train was here. I sat there for 10 minutes. It's obvious the train was not going to move. I put my car in reverse. I went back up to downtown, had to go down a one-way street, had to turn back around, go down another one-way street. I got to Riverstone. There was a car accident, and I sat there for 30 minutes. I went over by the um, by Bowling Park because I was going to go all the way up Highway 5, come back down Mary, and they had the bridge shut down for construction. I did a U-turn. I came all the way back across Riverstone, got caught at that same accident again, got stopped, came all the way through, got on the interstate, got on the interstate, traffic was blocked up. It took me an hour and 15 minutes to get home. It would have taken me two minutes. But that's what we do. God says, man, you've got a straight path for your life. You're going to go all the way around everywhere to get there. But I'm going to get you there no matter what. Man, God loves us. That's grace. Romans 5 says this, God's love was given us so all people could see how sinful they were. But as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. The more you mess up, the bigger God's grace becomes. So just as sin ruled over all people and brought them to death, now God's wonderful grace rules instead, giving us right standing with God and resulting in eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Here's what you need to accept. God loves you. And there's nothing you can do about it. The creator of the universe loves you. And the more we mess up, the more his grace abounds to pull us back in. 
Grace isn't a license to do wrong. Don't miss that. But it's liberty to live the life you were created for. Paul said, true joy comes from me realizing I don't have to follow these rules. And he knows he's about to die. He knows he's only going to write one more chapter. And he thought it was so important to tell the church at Philippi this. Quit listening to those dogs. Quit listening to their rules. Quit trying to let them make you into something God never intended. And just realize God loves you. God loves you. Doesn't matter what you're involved in. Doesn't matter what you're doing. When you realize God loves you, you'll want his best for you. But you'll never want his best for you to realize he truly loves you. You can't earn it, can't work it, can't buy it. He loves you right where you are. Experience his grace today.